Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Romans chapter 12. And in just a moment, we're going to read the first six and a half verses. First part of verse six. I think... Yes, so we have a closing hymn today, so be, be aware of that, just to let you know. So, Romans 12, um, we've been working verse by verse, so here we are. I, here's the thing that scares me about Romans 12. Um, you could say such a thing. We can make an idol out of anything, which means we can even make an idol out of our obedience. And so we have to be guarded from that. And if we go line by line in the text, the text will guard us from that. So just keep that in mind. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has One body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. We'll stop there. We're only going to get through verse 1, but I think it'll make sense as it moves along. So let's pray. And ask God for his help. A line from a hymn, God, you are our God, and we will ever praise you. We will seek you in the morning, and we will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, Father, you will lead us, and we will follow you all of our days. So, Father, please help us to take these verses to heart, to enjoy them, believe them, understand them, embrace them, and at the same time, whatever gains by your grace we will enjoy as we begin to learn from chapter 12, maybe, may we remember always that they are simply the crowning of your own grace given to us in Christ in our salvation. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen. So when you consider this church now, I think it's fair to say that because of God, we want to increasingly become a church in which gospel ministry is received. Gospel ministry, not just from a limited number of people, but a church in which everyone is becoming increasingly equipped to give those inside the church and to give those people outside the church authentic gospel ministry. And loved ones, one aspect of gospel ministry is incredibly more than just telling people to be good 
and then telling them how to be good. Because just to tell someone to be good, the Bible's really clear on that. It will destroy a person. So we get right to the points, how do we obey? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that everyone, beginning with myself, will need gospel ministry. I mean, that's just a profound sentence in itself, okay? Everyone, beginning with your pastor, will need, needs gospel ministry for this reason. And it's no small thing. And actually, as we work through chapters 12, 13, 14, all the way to 15, we're going to see that it's foundational to Paul's instruction. Because only the gospel holds out to us, among many other things, something that all people are in desperate need of on a daily basis. All people are in desperate need of forgiveness, which is a gospel ministry, of acceptance, which is a gospel ministry, of self-worth, which is definitely a gospel ministry, and power to change, which is a gospel ministry. So a life then foundationally not produced by us, but a life that's received from God in the gospel. Because only in the gospel, Paul says it right in the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, only in the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And God's power in the gospel is how people change. So you're here this morning, and you're like, I want to change. Well, join the group. I don't want ever a day to come in my existence where I say, you know, I don't want to change. So just think briefly about the three words, forgiveness, acceptance, and self-worth. This past Monday morning, I was reading online, and it's a magazine, online magazine, Commit. And the article that grabbed my attention had the title, The Fading of Forgiveness, Tracing the Disappearance of the Thing We Need Most. And the article stated very clearly and very simply recognizing the brutality of unforgiveness and how meaningful forgiveness is incredibly, is incredibly short supply these days. I mean, if anybody who pays attention to anything, we have to admit that. And so this is part of the article. Forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. Giving up your perfect right to pay back to the person what they did to you. Keep in mind, you know, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. This directly opposes how Americans are taught, are now taught to think and live. We are taught self-realization and self-assertion. That's your happiness. Your interest and your needs always come first. A culture promoting self-maximization, one that pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, will usually produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment, while a counterculture, a culture of grace, teaching self-renunciation, will much more likely produce forgiveness as a response. And then that article quotes from another article, most of us, most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. Now, on a bad day, I read that, and you corner me, and I'm like, yeah, and sometimes even in the church. If you were here for last Easter Good Friday service, I quoted from uh, this survey of 50,000 online sermons, and I was just struck that the word forgiveness was not a top 10 word used in Christian sermons. Just, I mean, maybe I'm a fool to believe that, but there's something that inherently bothers me about that. And if a person preaches a crossless, Christless, graceless, um, moral sermon, 
then you'll probably get that. And in terms of acceptance and self-worth, again, the article, if we continually deny people the opportunity to have an identity part from their punished identity, then you're inviting them to permanently inhabit the failure. Uh, In other words, not to change, i.e. no forgiveness. And even if they do change, because they are good-hearted, they will not be able to reconcile with anyone as long as they are presented with an identity that is attached to their failure. Think of here of, of the scarlet letter and Nathaniel Hawthorne's scarlet letter and the big A. You got to walk around with the big A. And so you think of your alphabet of sins. What letter do you have to walk around with of like total punishment forever? You, you always have to have a limp, if you would. Whatever it is. And then he ends with Martin Luther King wrote, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. That little phrase is almost fundamental to what we're going to learn here. The most fundamental thing about every Christian, I don't care who you are, what is true of every Christian is essentially this. Every true Christian life begins with, you see it there in verse 1, therefore. Therefore, every Christian life begins with a therefore. So it's interesting that verse 1 begins with, if you would, a plea. I mean, the language of the Greek there is Paul's not going like, be holy. He's begging you, he's begging me to, to be holy. I urge you, brothers. This is, he's like a, making a plaintiff plea, an earnest appeal. And so when you read the word therefore, verse 1, and all that follows, it's not, that our, it's not our high deeds, it's not our high achievements, it's not any high promise that we can make, but rather the genuine Christian life begins with the most simple and ordinary act of humility that there is on the face of the earth, is essentially is I need help. <laughs> I need forgiveness. I can't fix myself, therefore I need mercy. Look at your Bible. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, that's how every Christian life begins. That's how every Christian life is maintained. The true Christian life begins and remains knowing that we are sinners saved by grace, no matter how cliche that sounds. That we know ourselves, that in ourselves we are lost, flawed, and undeserving. But we know in Christ, as we sang, we are completely forgiven. We are completely accepted. We are always accepted. And we are made righteous. And we are delighted in by the one in the whole universe who matters most, who adores us most, and who we ought to adore most. So think of it like this. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, the Son of Man loved me and gave himself up for me, what Paul is saying is essentially this. There was a fixed point in time when Jesus Christ loved me and Jesus Christ gave himself up for me and that fixed point, the death of Christ on the cross, is the only reason why I know forgiveness, is the only reason why I'm accepted. It has nothing to do with my behavior. It's the only reason that I'm made righteous and my identity, therefore, my self-worth, therefore, from on and on until the end of time and past time will always flow from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is because of him that I'm able to change, and it's because of him that I want to change. And so sometimes chapter breaks help, help us. This one really doesn't help us, I don't think, because if you look at the last few verses of chapter 11, small wonder it ends that way. Because what Paul is saying is Christ is the final and ultimate meaning of all of reality. That nothing that you know can be rightly known anywhere in your life, in the world, in the church, in the Bible, in your homes, in your common relationships, in our obedience, 
that is not known, that is not filtered through Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, raised, ascending, and returning. That just comes to mind right now. Those of you who do social media and they do the Jesus stuff, I hope you're hearing that a lot. What's wrong with the world? More people need to believe, not whatever, Jesus lived and that he died and that he was buried and that he is risen and that he's returning. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, and 3. This is of primary importance. If you're like, everything about everything is filtered through Jesus Christ, his gospel, our brokenness, his grace, and his salvation, and even our obedience. So what you need to know this morning, and the first step, if you would, of obedience is our obedience flows out of the gospel, out of us being in Christ. In other words, our, our obedience flows through Christ in view of God's mercy. In other words, therefore, in view of God's mercy in the gospel. So I've said this before. And I'll say it again, whenever I say the preaching of Christ is the only way, the only true way to preach morality, I'm not pulling that out of the air. That's not a personal conviction. It's a biblical description. Every one of us are aware of pleas, sometimes the constant pleas for good conduct. And sometimes the reason that we're given to be good has nothing to do with Christ. And perhaps... I'm going to suggest these pleas are so out of proportion. And because they're so out of proportion, they are ineffective. If you just look at Romans, 11 chapters of theology. I mean, the first three chapters is everybody's bad. 11 chapters of theology. One chapter 12 of morality. One chapter, verse 13, of Christians being governed by the state and how that functions. And then two chapters on Christian freedom. So if you know anyone who's a Mormon or if you know anyone who's Islamic or, or even in Judaism and probably every other religion in the world, they all have their be good lessons. They all have them. And the whole foundation of Romans, I mean, the thing that it sits on is like, no one is good. No one is righteous. And therefore, you do not become a Christian by keeping the rules. That's impossible. You become a Christian by, by despairing of your own ability to keep any rule and you throw yourself as a helpless person on Christ for his perfect record of righteousness. In other words, verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, every Christian life begins and is maintained by that therefore. And to remind us that the very thing which makes obedience possible is God's mercy. The root of all our obedience is God's mercy. That God in Christ empties himself for us, dies for us, in our place, condemned he stood, raised, and he did all that because he love, love, loves us. That's how we can offer our bodies a living sacrifice. Better still, Christ is how we can offer our bodies a living sacrifice. That's how we change. That's how Christians obey. So you ask yourself the question. You're in the thick of it. How do I change? Well, you do not change by merely following the list that Paul gives us in chapter 12. But I change by the love of God and the grace of God. Verse 1, you see it there, in view of God's mercy. Now, I want you to listen carefully, please. Sometimes when people will ask I mean, are you kind of encouraging disobedience by this message of, you know, grace, grace, grace? 
Because if you keep assuring God's people of God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness, it seems like they'll do whatever they want. Well, this is what I can tell you for sure. Unconverted people will do whatever they want. I can tell you that. But if we keep assuring, like the Bible does, of God's people, of God's love in Christ, then he's going to change us to do what he wants. And the reason why they, us Christians, will do what he wants, not perfectly, we understand that. Nevertheless, the reason why we will do what he wants is because God loves us first. And, and it's God's love that causes God's people to change, to desire him, and that desire makes us want to walk with him and obey him. Okay, so you say, how do you know that's true? Right, besides Romans here, let's just look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read it to you. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. See, right to Christ. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been yet made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, All who have this hope in him purifies themselves, just as he is purred. No explanation. This is what the gospel does. Everybody who has that hope purifies themselves. So, In other words, the source, the root, the power is not emanating out of us by ourselves. This is in Christ's power. All who have this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So, so we don't need to fear that grace will allow, you know, will lead to license. And uh, no, grace stirs the heart and uh, in the heart of men and women. Grace is the heart of the gospel. And God's people, by God's grace, will change. It will change us from what we want into what he wants. And loved ones, once again, that is Paul's argument that I'm just dragging you through. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. You see, this is, this is an appeal to the head first. Think it out. Think out the gospel. Don't start tossing out every true gospel doctrine just because we're going to get into behavior. Why would you do that? Paul won't let us do that. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. And then it goes on. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Okay, that's number one. How do we change the mercy of God, the love of Jesus, the gospel. Love poured into us, and therefore love pours out of us. It's the only way in our obedience. Now, this is what you need to know, and we're going to repeat this actually in the second point. That means our obedience is not derived because, you know, like we have an ax to grind in the culture. Do you understand what I mean by that? Our obedience to God is not because we have an axe to grind in the culture. It's not because we have a nation to save. It's not because we want to feel better about ourselves. I understand that one. Our obedience is rooted in the mercy of God because of the mercy of God. I mean, so as we obey, that's in there. Why do I want to do X right? Why do I want to do Z right? Because of the mercy of God in the gospel. That's so foreign to us by nature. That we need to be changed by the gospel to believe that and think that way. This is Spurgeon. Christ loved you. And that's why you love him. 
He loved you when there was nothing good in you. He loved you though you insulted him, though you despised him and rebelled against him. He has loved you right on and never ceased to love you. He loved you in your backslidings and loved you out of them. He has loved you in your sins and your wickedness and folly. His love, his loving heart was still eternally the same. And he, he shed his heart's blood to prove his love for you. He has given you what you need on earth. And provided for you and an inhabitation in heaven. Now, Christian, your religion claims from you that you should love others and obey your master in these things. Can I just tell you, by way of a personal example, if someone's hounding me, you know, come on, come on, be better, be better. If that's all they're saying, come on, come on, be better, be better. Personally, I can't perform. I mean, honestly, I was, and this is allowed, but I was thinking in worship about this when I was singing. And I remember somewhere like in junior high, one of my coaches, you know, who I like idolized, he would never let me do anything. And he's like, in one class, I think it's our history class, Fran's own, go make me five copies. And he's, you know, Wah. And I'm first, I'm like, oh, he asked me something because I'm living in that world, you know. But then I get so nervous and I'm going to make it right. He asked for five copies. I think I brought him like, a, a, I'm not exaggerating, like, this many copies, the copier broke and someone had to get it, you know, and all that stuff. I don't do well. But you tell me you love me and you show it and you prove it, i.e. like Christ, I'm yours. I am yours. Number two then. Okay, number one, how do we obey God's mercy? Number two, why do we obey so kids and adults, remember your parents tell you to be good because, and they would fill it the blank, right? Be good because you'll get rewarded. That's good. Be good because if you don't, there's going to be some consequences. I understand that. You'll be good because you'll feel better about yourself. That's true. Be good. Here's a favorite one because you don't want to embarrass your parents, right? I mean, they're all kind of reasonable on some level. So, so why do we obey God? I mean, what is, if you would, what is the great because? Obey God because. Well, look at your Bibles, please. In chapter 12, verse 1, we're told to offer our bodies to God. Okay, we know this. Because of his mercy. In chapter 5, we're told to serve one another because we are one body in Christ. Verse 19, same chapter, we're told not to take revenge because vengeance belongs to God. A little more, chapter 13, verse 1, we're told to submit to the governing authorities, to the state, because they are put there by God. In verse 10, and following, we're told to love our neighbor and fulfill the law because the day of Christ's return is approaching. In chapter 14, and you'll see this later on as we're urged not to harm our brothers and sisters and some, you know, secondary issues. In any way, verse 15, because Christ died to be their Savior. Because Christ, verse 9, because Christ rose to be their Lord. Verse 11, because Christ is coming to be our judge. It is a marvelous but rare thing to see that the great doctrines of the cross, the resurrection, the return of Christ, the work of Christ, it's actually being pressed into service as the highest good for the highest reason for our obedience. Now, you, the thing with, you read that, and usually we get to the behavior part, and we forget about the theology part. So, so you know, let me just go back here. Yeah, so, love your neighbor and fulfill the law, and sometimes we just stop there. 
But we don't read because the day of Christ is approaching. So what I want you to see is the great and mighty because from God through his word is essentially the gospel. That's why we are good in our day-to-day Christian behavior. You see, loved ones, we're not pagan worshipers, you know, scratching the back of our God to get some goodies from our God. We don't, we're not obeying out of some constant fear and worry that the gods will hurt us and take away our stuff if we keep being bad. Our obedience is not paying God back or, or earning credits that we can cash in when we need. We cannot earn what he gives by grace, otherwise grace is not grace. And our obedience should not put anyone in our debt. Even like, you know, mentally, I'm better than you because I did X and Y and why not doing this and why don't they do that? Our obedience doesn't put anyone in our debt, certainly not God and certainly not each other. How could it? Nor can we use our obedience as a way to enhance our acceptability with God or even enhance our standing with other Christians or even our, enhance our own understanding of ourselves. That's, that's terrible. Because we then make obedience a dirty secret mechanism to advance ourselves as if the finished work of Jesus Christ somehow is failing us. Somehow is failing us. Loved ones, the cause of our obedience and the desire for our obedience was the cross of Christ. Meaning if there's no self-sacrificing Savior, then there'd be no hope of anyone obeying God in a way that really matters. And certainly not in the way that Paul writes of here. And, and if we forget this, and it's probably better to say when we forget this, we don't acknowledge this, we don't sow this tightly to our lives, then all we become, and you, you know, I'm a broken record here, we become like a moralist or the worst of all Pharisees or merely religious or maybe something that's kind of common in our day. We become a bunch of do-gooders parading around the community, condemning people, wondering why they can't be more like us. The complete opposite of verse 3, do you see it there? Do not think too highly of yourself, rather with a sober judgment. It's like Paul in a nice way saying, turn it down. Turn it down. You're not that good, and if you are that good, it's only because of Christ. And the point then is that our obedience ultimately achieves glory to God. Because Paul says it quite clearly there, our obedience is worship. It brings attention, all of the attention to God. At the end of verse 1, this is your true and proper worship. So in worship, whenever we worship, whether it be publicly or privately, we are, we are just setting ourselves aside. Self-will, self-determination, not important. We are in Christ now. Verse 36 of chapter 11, from him and through him and for him are all things. And in worship, we actually believe that. So in worship and the act of worship itself is myself, my will, my determination, my importance, All of it is in Christ. So you see that little phrase in verse 1, this is your true and proper worship. It's actually just two words in the Greek. And the word that is 
true and proper, it's the word oigokos. And it means this is, it's reason. It's logical. This is, if you would, divinely reasonable. I'm just going to quote to you from one of my Greek dictionaries. The believer grasps divine reasonableness here, which is constantly necessary for making acceptable offerings to the Lord each of which is equally profound to eternity when done in faith, a divine persuasion. These produce a seamless life in which every decision and every action can have profound eternal meaning, even in the earthly setbacks or sufferings or in just the dailiness of life. And you see, if you're listening and you're paying attention, the sacredness then of obedience It can't be overlooked. I mean, sometimes, and I'm sure that I've sent, and maybe I've preached, I don't know, but you can sit in this, Romans 12, and all all you're going to hear is, you know, do stuff for God, and do more stuff for God, and when you're done doing the more stuff, then do more stuff for God. Because you all know, you dirty little rascals, you're not sacrificing enough, and you're not doing enough. Now go home, and do more, and sacrifice more. That doesn't sound like worship, not like that. You gave me no root cause. You just gave me myself and my sin. The worship of God is our highest self in action. It's the implications of our new birth. This is what Edward Welch calls Christian obedience. Fellowshipping with God. Family project. Which is why Paul is, and I'm trying to be so tenacious about the grace of God in the gospel. And again, if you look at the last thing that Paul says in verse 11... And then read, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It means a lot, but one of the things it means is that everything about what was just said cannot be fully known, not be rightly known anywhere, disattached from the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So if you're taking notes, why do we obey Because our obedience is worship. It's the highest good in action. It's us communing with God. Therefore, when we do that, when we worship in obedience, who gets all the glory? God. Now, you say, well, okay, I hear you, but let me just say this. If the highest good in our obedience, therefore, is the worship of God or the glorifying of God, you should know that that one thing is the one thing which will never let you doubt in your obedience. All right, so sometimes we will obey God and it will bring us good. Indeed, a lot of good. Praise the Lord. However, sometimes we will obey God and will bring us a lot of pain and some harmful, hurtful things, at least in the short term. I mean, Joseph in the Old Testament running from Potiphar's wife, did that bring him good initially? No, it landed him in jail. Paul, obeying God and taking the gospel, incredible sacrifice. Did that bring him good initially? Well, no, a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of loss mixed in with a whole lot of good. How about Jesus? All the good that he did led him to a cross. Daniel and his three friends, they did good. But all their obedience was worship. That is the ultimate reason why we obey. That is like unbreakable, untouchable, infinite And it can never be diminished. Verse 1, it is true and proper worship. 
I don't know if this will make sense to you, but I thought of my dad. And whenever I did wrong at home, all my dad would have to say is, oh, Joe. And oh, Joe meant, look at your life that you have. Oh, Joe, what are you doing? In other words, look at the life you're living. How do we obey? How is obedience even possible? It is the mercy of God, the merciful gift of God's son. Why do we obey? Obedience is worship. It's reasonable. It is visible and it is invisible. Open love to God, private love to God. It is grace and visible action. It is grace and invisible action. It is beauty. It is logical. It is reasonable. Finally, what do we give in our obedience? Do you see it there? Our bodies, the presentation of our bodies to God. Now, the context is going to help us here because the context here was not only a Jewish context, but it was also a Greek context. And in the Greek world, and I think this is, this is calculated by Paul, in the Greek world, they only thought of the body as a tomb. So the human body was embarrassing. It, it was a hindrance to all the spiritual good that you can do. And so the slogan was literally the body is a tomb. And so the spirit is good. The body's bad. And then Paul says what he says. And I think this is fair today. Even sometimes today Christians can, Christians can feel self-conscious about their just bodies. And so I need to take you down a very uncomfortable but profitable path. Cocaine, meth, cutting your flesh or self-mutilation or seeking pain, illicit sex, alcoholism, opioids, pornography, shoplifting. All those vices, all those addictions have two things in common. One, they all have to do with our physical body. And two, they all deliver some kind of bodily experience. We, we feel them in some way. So sometimes we're calmer. Sometimes we're more alert. Sometimes we're less shy. Sometimes we feel more powerful. Sometimes we get a little buzz or at ease. But they ask a heavy price. Our bodies cannot pay. Furthermore, most addictions will change something about your bodies, your physical appearance. Isn't that true? I mean, most addictions will do that. Some will change it immediately. Some will do it rather, rather um, slowly. And almost all these addictions change your capacity to think rationally, to understand things as they should be understood, to see the world as it is, and as a Christian to see yourself in Christ. And so I read that, and I can almost hear the new Christian who, who has been rescued by those things. And loved ones, doesn't Jesus Christ rescue people from those things? Doesn't he? And isn't this true that sometimes Christians struggle with those things? The burden of those things? And they're repentant about it. They're not happy with it. And they're dealing with it on an ongoing basis. Isn't that true? So they read this, offer your body to God holy and pleasing to God. There's a part of me that wants to say, this body... This body you want? Last night, Nicole and I were on the road really, really late. And we were listening to podcasts together. And it was, uh, I don't know how we found it. Nicole found it. And it was about a youth pastor in, I'm going to just say, quote, crazy church. Forgive me. It's the best I can do right now. 
It was a large church in Sacramento, California, and it actually is part of a major denomination. But anyway, the youth pastor told a dear young man, this would have been 2014, he said, you can't go to any of the youth events at church because you are too overweight, and you're being a bad witness for Jesus, and you're showing that your life is an undisciplined life. So go home, essentially, is what he said. So you little kid, youth kid, hearing that? This body, yes, this body, holy and pleasing to God, offer it. Loved ones, the paradox of the Christian life. And we're going to close with this. The paradox of the Christian life is that as we go on with Christ, the moment we're converted, we see something of our sin that we've never seen before. It creates in us something of a brokenness, which is good. And we see our need of Christ. However, it's not a brokenness to despair because I see Christ and he supplies my needs and he gives me power. He gives me the want to, to be holy and pleasing to him. So then our sorrows sorrows turn into joy. But as we walk in the Christian walk and we grow in grace and knowledge, we see more of God. Therefore, we see more of our sin and more how broken we are. And yet, we see more of Christ And who we are in Christ. And so the greater becomes our joy. And we want to please our king. And so that's the paradox. In the end, you're broken, more broken than you ever have known yourself before. That's Christian maturity. You see more of your sin than you've ever seen before. And yet you rejoicing more than you ever have before. Because you're seeing more of Christ than you ever have before. And I want to tell you, loved ones, that is holiness. That is holiness. That's how we change. That is pleasing to God. I was not texting over there during worship. If you were looking at me and saying, what is he doing? Shame on you. But anyway, these are the lines from the song. Christ has defeated every sin. What love could remember no wrong we have done. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He, He welcomes the weakest, the vilest. And he changes us to obey him. And that's how we change. It's how we're pleasing to God. So I want to say, let's just be careful. In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Our eyes are to be on our own bodies. Be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. The offering is of our body, holy and pleasing to God. All right, how do we obey? God's mercy. Why do we obey? Well, it's it's, it's our worship to God. It's what we were made for. And what do we give? Our bodies. Our bodies, holy and pleasing to God. And that's the title, isn't it? In reverse, that we can pour our obedience out because God's love and mercy has been poured in. So it's not our job to fix the world, but it's our joy. It is our reasonable and proper act of worship to offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And the best I can understand that The only sacrifice in all human history which came willingly was Jesus Christ. And we are in Christ. 
That means our new nature says, if he is willing, if he was willing, then I am willing to live my life for him. Let's pray and prepare to sing. God and Father, you are so good. And the goodness that you call us to is so good. You're a good father. We sing it here often, and it's the truth. I'm, I think more, more of your goodness has been mentioned publicly in the life of this church over the past six months than, than I can remember. It could be, I could be wrong, but that's how I understand it right now. So God, as we work through Romans 12, may your goodness and your glory be the high motivation for our goodness and obedience to you. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.